The Chicago City Council is going to hold what is called a subject matter hearing on the treatment, not trauma ordinance. A subject matter just means there won't be a vote or any other action. But ahead of the debate over treatment, not trauma, we ought to hear about what and why it is. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. Treatment Not Trauma is an ordinance, but it is really a package of measures whose lead sponsor is Alderwoman Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez. Among the provisions, making good on Mayor Brandon Johnson's campaign promise that he would reopen the mental health centers closed under Rahm Emanuel more than a decade ago. The measures also include one that will establish a citywide program to send mental health professionals to mental health emergencies instead of police. Well, this weekend, we are checking under the hood of Treatment Not Trauma and what it will do and maybe what it won't do. And we have some of its strongest advocates to help sort it all out. My guests have all been in the trenches in the fight for this ordinance. First, we have Dr. Arturo Carrillo, who is Deputy Director for Health and Violence for the Brighton Park Neighborhood Council. We are also joined by Ani Homani, a community organizer for the BPNC, and Cheryl Miller, an organizer with STOP at his Southside Together Organizing for Power. And I thank all of you for joining me. We are conducting this discussion via Zoom conferencing. There are a couple of headline provisions in treatment, not trauma. One of them is the plan to reopen the approximately dozen city-run mental health clinics closed under Mayor Rahm Emanuel. Cheryl Miller, STOP was at the very first news conference uh, I covered about those closures or those planned closures at the time here at City Hall. Why was that such a blow at the time? STOP has, um, as an organization, has always had the mission to fight against displacement in the Woodlawn community, started fighting displacement in the Woodlawn communities. Um, and one of our stop members said, was like, great, I'm so glad you saved our housing. I'm still going to have to move because they're going to close my clinic and I need to be where my clinic is. Um, and that was when stop looked and said, oh, displacement happens in a lot of different ways, you know, within this neoliberal um, context. And part of how you displace people is making um, their communities untenable for them. So, um, and so, and that, and that was Mayor Daly, stop, um, so stop really helped um, kind of pull together what then became the the coalition that became the, the big, from which the mental health movement um, sprang and really, in a lot of battles, and including a stand in at City Hall when the um, Olympic Committee was coming, <laughs> um, was able to stop daily, daily let go of that idea of closing. Um, but when um, Rahm Emanuel came in, as we know, then we, then he he did, was not a mayor that responded to community. Um, and and did not. The reason it's so important is that um, the mental health centers really are community were were community anchors. It's the Woodlawn Center, um, people were able to go um, for services. It's free. 
um, even people also even would use it, uh, even though it was appointment-based, people use it as a walk-in center. So if they were in crisis, they would sometimes walk themselves to the center or if somebody would take them and they could just sit in the waiting room until somebody came to um, help them. The the Woodland Center had um, opened it up so community members could use use have meetings there, use it as meeting rooms. People, if they had questions around city services, would um, would go in. So um, so these centers were a vital part of of this of the community, and so much so that eleven years later. Um, last summer, uh, we when we were getting petition signatures for the um, non-binding referendum that we were able to get on the November ballot in several wards, one of them being the 20th ward, um, people canvassing would encounter people who talked about still how much they still felt the loss to the community um, with the Woodlawn Center. Uh, Dr. Arturo Carrillo, uh, the administration at that time called the clinics underutilized, uh, saying not enough patients were coming. First off, was that true? And even if it was, was it enough of a reason to kill or to close all 11 or 12 that it was? Yeah, no, that was definitely not true. I mean, as a, at the time, um, I'm, I'm a licensed clinical social worker by training. Uh, at the time of the closures, I was working for a nonprofit provider. And when the clinics closed, we saw an enormous uptick in the number of intakes and people who were scrambling trying to find resources, right? So um, they were definitely being utilized. And, and what was most tragic about this situation was that when the clinics closed, people were left without aftercare, without a plan for, for, for care. Um, Cheryl could definitely add uh, many of the leaders who were part of that movement, the mental health movement, uh, called for action because they said people would die and people did die as a result of, of the clinic closures. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't true. They were definitely being utilized. Unfortunately, what it was, was, was a, uh, an abdication of the city's responsibility to care for its residents and, and, and it immediately pushed people uh, off to find other providers in the network that of, of providers that in a nonprofit sector that was not ready or capable of handling that entire influx. Um, so no, it, it wasn't true. Uh, unfortunately, what we see still, right, one of the other reasons that was given when the public mental health centers was closed was that, well, with the uh, expansion of the ACA, the Obamacare measures will finally provide mental health services to all those who need it. Um, and that also didn't happen, right? And so you know, at the time I was also a doctoral student and, and really engaged with local organizing around uh, mental health access. And so through that part in, 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 in my experience, you know, I was very much uh, focused on making sure we could document what these access barriers look like, right? When, when we talk about access to mental health care, what, is, what are keeping people from accessing care? And so we started research and we've done research ever since. And all the research shows the same thing, right? That there is an enormous disparity of who gets access to care and who doesn't in the city of Chicago. And, and really the system that currently exists is not providing enough services. There's an overwhelming need and we can get into the numbers if you'd like uh, for your audience. But, but the data really is clear in that the system that we currently have is not go far enough. And unfortunately, there's too many people out of care 
and and perpetually uh, experiencing crises. And Ani Huamani, let me uh, follow that up with you. Um, the Lightfoot administration and Dr. Allison Arwady said that this network that they have set up of privately run clinics brought in um, were better equipped and that the city is in fact now serving more patients than it did before. Why should people who are listening to this not consider that a success? And, and I, I think we have to acknowledge that it is a fact that more people are being served um, and the budget has been increased. Yeah, thank you. So part of that why we don't advocate for them, we advocate for public, it's because it's more it's accessible, not more accessible, but accessible in general. These privatized clinics, etc., these have requirements, right? Either whether it's your income, immigration status, which people aren't comfortable till this day sharing immigration statuses. And most importantly is the insurance as well. We've noticed, I personally, like my friends have gotten rejected from getting uh, mental health services because they're not on Medicaid, right? Uh, And they don't qualify for Medicaid because their income, et cetera. So when we advocate for public mental health centers, we're advocating for accessible mental health care that obviously is not happening in the most needed communities of Chicago, which are usually the black and brown communities that have been disinvested for so long um, and these services, these clinics, these privatized services are mostly condensed in an area of high income levels, right? So we we see that data that Arturo had mentioned, like this data shows that public the public mental health centers are so spare, like are so spread out that they're not serving the communities that they need to serve, but also we see these privatized clinics so like concentrated in an area that are very super served to say the least with services that sometimes like it's just it's unreasonable to see that in some areas of the cities with high income levels they have access to like four therapists in average and over here where they close down the centers we have like a point something of a person access so Arturo can also add more to the data but the main reason is because these clinics are not accessible fully. Um, they have requirements, qualifications, et cetera, that not everyone can fulfill, which is heartbreaking. Arturo, well, you wanted to add something. Yeah, you know, it, you know, I'll go further. I'll say that that there's been two tragic, and I'd say criminal, um, uh, realities from this previous administration that we have to acknowledge, right? One is we, we do talk about the closures of public mental health centers, but, but what's also important to know is that the five remaining public mental health centers also received cuts in staffing and did not receive the adequate funding to make them actually fully functional. I'll give you a perfect example, right? The, the public mental health centers uh, in our first campaign uh, during the Lightfoot administration, during the first budget uh, campaign that we had, we had to advocate for the public mental health centers to finally have an electronic medical record system. Up until that point, things were still being documented on paper, right? And, and we're talking about four years ago. Um, now, I know the Lightfoot administration will take credit for having, quote unquote, invested in the five public mental health centers that remained. But the truth is, they did that kicking and screaming, right? That They did that because we fought them. They, they did that because all their people in city council withheld the nomination of Alison Arwadi 
in order to, 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 to force the hand of the administration to finally invest in basic essentials that the five public mental health centers needed. So it's it's criminal to say that you're un, the, the centers are being underutilized when they're not receiving the, the necessary staffing and the necessary infrastructure to be functional, right? So so that's that's one piece. And we've fought and every step of the way in these last four years, we have had to fight them tooth and nail for everything that they now take credit for. So I, I do want to make sure we recognize that. Second, you know, the, the other thing that, that that this administration will say is that, well, if you invest in the private sector, you're serving more people. Now, I, I do also want to call that out because really what, what we're talking about is a numbers game, right? What the city became and under the leadership of Dr. Allison Arwadi, right? We know Dr. Allison Arwadi was absolutely opposed to reopening the public mental health centers and absolutely opposed to, to investing. Uh, she, she comes from, she's a holdover from the Mayor Rahm Emanuel administration. And so, so uh, you know, in public hearings, she's been very vocal during that administration, and and as of the last four years as well, that the public mental health centers should not receive further investment. Right? She's made that, that those points extremely clear. Um, and and what they advocate instead is to to, to fund the private sectors. Now, I, I do want to kind of for your for the audience kind of explain this one a little bit more in detail. What the city has opted to do instead of being a provider of care. They, they want to become the philanthropist, right? They want to fund the federally qualified health centers, the community mental health agencies, the community-based organizations that already exist, that are already part of the built-in infrastructure. We're not actually adding new centers. We're not adding any new physical locations. What the city is saying is we'll give you up to, I want to say $300,000 to provide additional services. Now, our- These are non-profit. Correct. And to the federally qualified health centers that already receive federal reimbursement and other uh, uh, public assistance to, to operate. And, and what they're saying is that we want to provide you to provide uh, access for mental health services in these communities. Now, in many cases, they already were doing that. And so our first fear is that then that money would be used to supplant existing operations, right? Just to kind of uh, offset some costs. Um, secondly, what the city gets in return is that they get to count every individual that walks through that clinic as somebody being served for mental health service. What does that look like? What does that actually mean? We've had a lot of questions that have not been answered. If somebody walks in and gets a mental health screening, is that counted as somebody served? Is that part of the 77,000? If somebody goes to a health fair and a community-based organization gives them the stress ball, does that count as well as a mental health service provided? Right. So then it becomes a quick numbers game. And then, and then of course, all of a sudden, by funding all these organizations that already have so many foot, so much foot traffic. Right, you start to get to count all those numbers and all of a sudden say, well, 77,000 people were served. But again, what's the quality of services? Are you really addressing people's trauma? And even though the clinics, by comparison, are serving relatively fewer people, what you're actually doing is providing long-term care to less people, but in the sort of way that will actually address and, and provide spaces for healing for people who need that level of, of treatment. Cheryl Miller, you wanted to say something. Yes, and even and I'm and I'm so sorry I couldn't pull up the exact the, the exact numbers, but even um, you know as an example, and this is this is my rough memory. I didn't pull it up exam um, at a hearing. Dr. Arwadi said that oh, um, in from the period of Jan January June, I think that was um, for for twenty one, um, or it might have been for twenty two that. Um, they served um, 14 or 14,000 people had gotten um, 28,000 visits. 
uh, it's just slightly over 14,000, slightly under 28,000. But when um, when you did the math, what just based on their own numbers, that counted as 1.9 visits um, per person within six months. Um, and or um, they, they don't say visits, they, um, they said units of care. Um, and that, so we still didn't have, and would and would we still refuse to give it. So even if you even use their numbers, what they're doing is highly inadequate. Uh, I'm going to uh, we're going to take a, a little bit of a breather for a second. You are listening to WBBM News Radio's at issue. I'm Craig Delamore. We're talking about treatment, not trauma, a proposed new way for Chicago to handle mental health crises. My guests are Dr. Arturo Carrillo and Ani Huamini, uh, Huamani, I'm sorry, of the uh, Brighton Park Neighborhood Council and Cheryl Miller with Stop Southside Together Organizing for Power. I actually want to move on to the other part of this uh, equation because that is also getting a lot of attention. And that is what happens when there is a crisis underway and who responds. Um, right now, the uh, city is still trying out, well, it's trying out a couple of things. But most of the money is going toward what they call a co-responder model, which has police and a mental health professional responding to emergency calls. The theory is that the officers are there in case things go sideways. Um, and whichever you wants to uh, to go first on, on this, um, what what is the problem with the co-responder model that they are trying to change? Um, Ani, do you want to uh, you want to take this first? Yeah, I can I can give a um, what's the biggest issue here. Um, so the biggest issue here is is the police officer being present, right? Um, these are officers that get a forty hour training to quote unquote understand a person in crisis and what to do in crisis. While there are mental health professionals and licensed professionals that need over eight hundred hours, right, to understand what happens in crisis and how to deescalate these situations. And we've noticed that police um, don't understand like what to do in these situations. We've noticed nationally what happens when someone has been in crisis and they've murdered people when people have been in crisis. And it's sad because this is not just Chicago. This is a national issue. And we've noticed that even more, more and more in the past, what I want to say, maybe 10 years. Right. And how much money is going into that to settle those uh, issues. So having a police in there is just it's going it's an escalation that is not needed at all when people should be treated with care and empathy rather than being like approach aggressively, because that's what police officers do. They just approach you aggressively and it's considered and it's led to murders. And and yeah, like that's the biggest issue. The training is not possible. Police officers are not trained to do these kind of things and they shouldn't be in there whatsoever. Arturo Carrillo, um, how can the crisis response teams do better? Uh, yes, it is. They have the training, but you don't always know what you're walking into uh, or how close to becoming a violent confrontation something is. So uh, how how are these teams able to assess and know what to do from a possible danger standpoint for the teams themselves and the people around uh, the incident? 
Yeah, and it's unfortunate that we've we've set the tone that this previous mayor has set the tone on this on, on this issue in that way. There was a lot of fear mongering that, that happened in the last administration when we when it came to crisis response, right? Um, people in, in mental health crisis are more likely to be affected by police violence than they are to actually cause violence, right? And so we know that. We know the presence of police officers. I mean, any one of your listeners on their best day, if you're driving down the street and a police officer pulls up behind you, right, your, your anxiety is going to spike at that moment, you know, on your best day. Now, on your worst day, just the physical presence of a police officer uh, can escalate situations immediately, right? And so, uh, unfortunately, right, the presence of police officers and we've seen and time and time again have led to escalations just by their mere presence. And of course, they are trained to subdue individuals by force. Right. So 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 it, it's problematic. Um, a few things that we, we see with treatment trauma that would be different is that. People, when given the option to have crisis response workers that do not involve the police will reach out sooner before crises escalate. Unfortunately, people don't want to involve the police and often reluctantly call 911 after things have spiraled instead of a, what could have been hours, if not maybe days earlier, when, when, when uh, an appropriate uh, intervention without police could have been offered. This city doesn't offer that. So we're excited about the subject matter hearing that will be happening Monday because we will be hearing from experts who have implemented non-police crisis response in other cities like Albuquerque, like Portland, right? New York City, right? These are cities that have big urban cities that have the same types of problems that we have here in Chicago, but again, are, are dealing with crises in a more humane fashion uh, without police. And, and again, much more preventatively. Let me uh, raise one issue that I, I spoke uh, uh, on on Thursday with uh, Alexa James, the CEO of NAMI Chicago. And she pointed out one thing that she says is going to have to be addressed, and that is right now, only a police officer is authorized to take someone either into custody or even to treatment if that person doesn't want to go. And is is that not something that has to be addressed yeah. as we work out what is going to happen on the scene? Well, that's that's it's interesting point by Alexa James to bring that up. I mean, Alexa James and NAMI Chicago received big city contracts to train police officers on CIT training. Right. They are the beneficiary financially of, of the city's previous plan under both administrations, Mayor uh, Emanuel and Mary Lightfoot. Right. So uh, we would want to wonder what the conflict of interest is in, in her position there. Um, but but is the issue not a valid one to at least it, consider? Uh, you yeah. know, and, and, when you look at other cities, here's what you see. <laughs> You see that like in Denver, for example, uh, 100% of the calls did not require police backup in one year worth of pilot data, right? When you see Eugene, for example, uh, you see that only 2% of calls required police backup. And what happens when police involve themselves is what she's pointing to, right? When unfortunately a situation has become and requires involuntary hospitalization, and that's when the, the non-police crisis teams can call for police backup, and they do. So it's not that you have to have police on the scene. I think what the point she's trying to make and, and what's problematic is that you are involving police to assess the scene. And what that looks like is having a police officer take the authority away from the social worker, from a behavioral health worker, and immediately inject uh, the possibility of escalation by having police presence instead of having a non-police crisis team assess the situation, step away from it if needed and call for police backup, or in most cases, deal with the individual in a humane way 
and then request police backup if the person needs to be hospitalized. And and I'm, before I bring Cheryl Miller in, I, I do want I don't want to mischaracterize what what uh, Alexa James uh, said to me because she in fact said keeping police out of the 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 situation, especially at the onset, is a really good thing. And and in fact, she said I get nervous when I see police. So she was actually agreeing with your point, but simply said we have to think about what happens if. At some point, you need to have uh, have have somebody taken where they don't want to go. Cheryl Miller, you also wanted to say something. I, I and I wanted to say um, that, uh, of course, if uh, it just you know, call it a, um, in all of these other cities where there is a situation there where the social worker or crisis worker thinks that they need um, police backup and it, the percentage is very low, they call for backup. It, you know, it, it's the same in any situation, you know, if, um, if it, you know, where police themselves will call for backup when they get to a situation and think, oh, this is something different. So this has been pitched I think this this argument of oh well what if what if what if it's one of those things that actually not um, common sense but it but it is actually I'm glad we get to make the point because that is in terms of even in the public because people are concerned and they want to make sure that um, social workers and clinicians are safe and when and then it's like yes they have if they feel unsafe they can call for backup. And then people, oh, right, that makes sense. You know, but it's always been pitched as this, you can either have this or you can have that. (laughs) And I'm going to ask a question that actually requires a long answer, but we only have a minute. So, and that is, is the city, does it have the capacity and the resources to back up this new way of doing things after the crisis is over? Or are we setting things up so that when the crisis is over, we're sending people back to the exact same environment that they went from? Do we also need to look at housing? Do we also need to look at wraparound services? Um, maybe I'll, I'll throw this one to you, Ani, uh, because you're out working with the community. Uh, do we need to take some more steps? Yeah, one of the biggest things we're advocating for is long-term care, right? It's not one touch and go, like you mentioned. The the city, the money is there. <laughs> we'll say that much. The money is there. Um, the resources are there. Um, right now we're like looking to see like where we can start establishing these, reopening the centers, right? Working um, we I think we have a pretty unique situation here with the new gov- uh with the new administration. And we're stepping into something that could lead to co-governance, right? So it's a very unique situation. The resources are there. And um, the subject matter hearing is some one of the biggest things that we've been trying for the past couple of years to get. And now that we have this administration that seems to be more friendlier, right? And understanding and willing to work with us. Um, I'm sure there's going to be something, but the money is there. Resources are there. This can be funded. And we're going to continue advocating for long-term care because um, mental health is not just a one touch and go. And Ani, that is a perfect last word for this. Uh, And we will, of course, be covering that hearing in the morning 
and and keeping up with this issue all along. So I thank all all three of you. That's Cheryl Miller from Stop and Ani Humani and Dr. Arturo Carrillo from the Brighton Park Neighborhood Council. I thank all of you for uh, for being with us. To our listeners, if you'd like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website. That is WBBMNewsRadio.com. There's a link on the homepage, and you can also find our podcasts on Odyssey.com. We'll be back next week with another edition of that issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 105.9 WBBM. <laughs>